Section 23. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 23. Chapter 5 Continued. 3. Following upon this success, Dumouriez pressed on to what had been, from the first moment of his power at the head of the army, his personal plan, to wit, the invasion of the Low Countries. To understand why this invasion failed, and why Dumouriez thought it might succeed, we must appreciate the military and political situation of the Low Countries at the time. They then formed a very wealthy and cherished portion of the Austrian dominions. They had latterly suffered from deep disaffection culminating in an open revolution, which was due to the Emperor of Austria's narrow and intolerant contempt of religion. From his first foolish policy of persecution and confiscation, he had indeed retreated, but the feeling of the people was still strongly opposed to the government at Vienna. It is remarkable indeed, and in part due to the pressure of a strong Protestant and aristocratic state, Holland to the north of them, that the people of the Austrian Netherlands retained at that time a peculiar attachment to the Catholic religion. The revolution was quite as anti-Catholic as the Austrian emperor, but of the persecution of the latter, the Belgians, as we now call them, knew something that of the former they had not yet learned to dread. It was therefore Dumouriez's calculation that in invading this province of the Austrian power he would be fighting in friendly territory. Again it was separated from the political center of the empire. It was therefore more or less isolated politically, and even for military purposes communication with it was not so easy, unless indeed Austria could count on a complete cooperation with Prussia, which power had been for now so long her ruthless and persistent rival. Favorable, however, as the circumstances appeared for an invasion, two factors telling heavily against the French had to be counted. The first was the formation of their army. The second, the spirit of rebellion against any anti-Catholic government which had given such trouble to Joseph II. Of these two factors by far, the most important was, of course, the first. If the French forces had been homogeneous, in good spirit, and well-trained, they might have held what they won. As a fact, they were most unhomogeneous, great portions of them were ill-trained, and worst of all, there was no consistent theory of subordinate command. Men who imagined that subordinate, that is, regimental command in an army, could be erected from below, and that a fighting force could resemble a somewhat lax and turbulent democracy, marched alongside of and were actually incorporated with old soldiers, who had spent their whole careers under an unquestioned discipline and under a subordinate command, which came to them they knew not whence, and as it were by fate. The mere mixture of two such different classes of men in one force would have been bad enough to deal with. But what was worse, the political theories of the day fostered the military error of the new battalions, though the politicians dared not interfere with the valuable organization of the old. The invasion of the Low Countries began with a great, though somewhat informal and unfruitful success, in the victory of Jim Apps. It was the first striking and dramatic decisive action which the French, 
always of an eager appetite for such news, had been given since between forty and fifty years. The success in America against the English, though brilliantly won and solidly founded, had not presented occasions of this character, and Fontenoy was the last national victory which Paris could remember. Men elderly or old in this autumn of 1792 would have been boys or very young men when Fontenoy was fought. The eager generation of the revolution, with its military appetites and aptitudes, as yet had hardly expected victory, though victory was ardently desired by them, and peculiarly suitable to their temper. It may be imagined, therefore, what an effect the news of Jemappes had upon the political world in Paris. The action was fought just below the town of Mons, a few miles over the frontier, and consisted in a somewhat ill-ordered but successful advance across the river Hane. Whether because the Austrians, with an inferior force, attempted to hold too long a line, or because the infantry, and even the new French volunteer battalions, as yet untried by fatigue, proved irresistible in the centre of the movement. Jemappes was a victory so complete that the attempts of apologists to belittle it only served to enhance its character. Like many another great and apparently decisive action, however, it bore no lasting fruit. Both the factors of which I have spoken above appeared immediately after this success. Belgium was indeed overrun by the French but in their overrunning of it with something like eighty thousand men they made no attempt to spare the traditions or to conciliate the sympathies of the inhabitants hardly was jemappes won when mons the neighboring fortified frontier town was at once endowed with a whole machinery of revolutionary government church property was invaded and occasionally rifled and the french paper money the assinates of which we have heard poured in to disturb and in places to ruin the excellent commercial system upon which Belgium then, as now, reposed. Jemappes was fought upon the 6th of November, 1792. Brussels was entered upon the 14th, and throughout that winter the Low Countries lay entirely in the hands of the French. The commissioners from the Convention, though endowing Belgium with republican institutions, treated it as a conquered country and before the breaking of spring the french parliament voted its annexation to france this annexation the determination of the politicians in paris that the new belgian government should be republican and anti-catholic the maltreatment of the church in the occupied country and the increasing ill-discipline and lack of cohesion in his army left dumouriez in a position which grew more and more difficult as the new year, 1793, advanced. It must be remembered that this moment exactly corresponded with the execution of the king and the consequent declaration of war by or against France in the case of one power after another throughout Europe. Meanwhile, it was decided, foolishly enough, to proceed from the difficult occupation of Belgium to the still more difficult occupation of Holland, and the siege of Maastricht was planned. The moment was utterly ill-suited for such a plan. Every executive in the civilized world was coalescing openly or secretly, directly or indirectly, against the revolutionary government. The first order to retreat came upon the 8th of March, when the siege of Maastricht was seen to be impossible, 
and when the great forces of the Allies were gathered again to attempt what was to be the really serious attack upon the revolution, something far more dangerous, something which much more nearly achieved success than the march of the comparatively small force which had been checked at Valmy. For ten days the French retreat continued, when upon the 18th of March Dumouriez risked battle at Neerwinden, his army was defeated. The defeat was not disastrous. The retreat was continued in fairly good order, but a civilian population understands nothing beside the words defeat and victory. It can appreciate a battle, not a campaign. The news of the defeat, coming at a moment of crisis in the politics of Paris, was decisive. It led to grave doubts of Dumouriez's loyalty to the revolutionary government. It shattered his popularity with those who had continued to believe in him, while the general himself could not but believe that the material under his command was rapidly deteriorating. Before the end of the month, the army had abandoned all its conquests, and Valenciennes in French territory was reached upon the 27th. The dash upon Belgium had wholly failed. At this moment came one of those political acts which so considerably disturb any purely military conspectus of the revolutionary wars. Dumouriez, at the head of his army, which, though in retreat and defeated, was still intact, determined upon what posterity has justly called treason, but what to his own mind must have seemed no more than statesmanship. He proposed an understanding with the enemy and a combined march upon Paris to restore the monarchical government and put an end to what seemed to him as a soldier a perfectly hopeless situation. He certainly believed it impossible for the French army in the welter of 1793 to defeat the invader. He saw his own life in peril merely because he was defeated. He had no toleration for the rising enthusiasm or delirium of the political theory which had sent him out and even before he had reached French territory, his negotiations with Kohlberg, the Austrian commander, had begun. They lasted long. Dumouriez agreed to put the frontier fortress of the French into the hands of the enemy as a guarantee and a pledge, and on the 5th of April all was ready for the alliance of the two armed forces. But just as the treason of Dumouriez is, in the military sense, abnormal and disturbing to any general conspectus of the campaign, so was the action of his army. The doubtful point of a general command, which is political in nature and may be unpopular with the rank and file, lies, of course, in the attitude of the commanders of the units, and these unanimously refuse to obey the orders of their chief. It was known that Dumouriez had been summoned to the bar of the convention, which body had sent commissioners to apprehend him. He had arrested the commissioners and had handed them over as hostages and prisoners to Coburg. So far from Dumouriez upon the critical day handing over his force to the army, or constituting it a part of an allied army to march upon the capital, he was compelled to fly upon the 8th of April. All that disappeared with him counting many who later deserted back again to the French colors, was less than a thousand men, and these foreign mercenaries. The end of section 23